Hey, everybody. This is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. And we have an interview today. And it's a treat because it is Jeff Cronin with... If you don't know who he is, he is the cinematographer who has worked with David Fincher a number of times, been nominated for Oscars twice, and perhaps most uh, popular among... Our community, but what do I know? Maybe not. Uh, he shot Fight Club. So he has, you know, he was nominated for The Social Network. Um, I think Girl with the Dragon Tattoo as well for the Oscars. He's up for an Emmy now for Tales from the Loop, which is an amazing sci-fi series. Uh, but he has one of the great Hollywood industry inside stories his grandfather was a still photographer who was nominated for oscars back when uh, still photography for features was enough of a part of the process that uh, there was a category in the oscars for that his father was a legendary cinematographer who shot among other things blade runner with ridley scott and jeff actually was on set quite a bit so we talk about that today we talk about his apprenticeship with his father, becoming a loader, a second, a first. We talk about him working with uh, Sven Nykvist, who, if you don't know who he is, we talk about it in the podcast, but he's one of the greatest cinematographers ever who shot most of Ingmar Bergman's movies, and Jeff worked closely with him. So Jeff is just steeped in cinematography from the last like half century. Um, and he has shot these amazing movies. He shot film. He shot digital. He's been involved in the development of the red sensors along with Fincher. Uh, and, and don't cut out of this interview early because at the end, he gives what I can only describe as a masterclass on camera movement from the way that he and David Fincher approach it. And, and you just, it's just so special that we got this and that he took the time to talk to us and share all of this. And I'm really excited that everybody's going to get to listen to it. And uh, here we go. Where did your career really begin? Like what, what made you first get started as a cinematographer? Did you always know it was going to be cinematography? Um, what was the kind of the first seed that, that got you going? Well, it's a, it's a bit of a long answer. Cause I have a, I'm, I'm one of the lucky silver spoon kids. I, um, my grandfather won the last portrait, won an Oscar for portrait photography for the last time they, they had that category. And, wow. and the reason, the reason they had a category like that, cause unlike today where, uh, still photographers and, and publicists get the images directly from the set predominantly. Back in those days with the big slow flash cameras and whatnot, they, they actually directed and photographed the talent separately and offset, you know, often on different days and whatnot. And, and then that was the sole source of uh, publicity for them. So that had a category. And then my father um, is as acclaimed a cinematographer as there is. You know, he photographed Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner and, and a litany of other, other movies. And I was fortunate enough to, you know, visit the set as a kid and, became enamored pretty early on with the experience. You know, I, I, I had no idea what everybody did in, 
I, I just felt like I loved the collaboration. I loved this mentality of kind of every day going out to overcome all the obstacles that are thrown at you that day, like a military operation. And, uh, and the camaraderie was very appealing to me. So as I got older and, and, and figured out who does what and what everything meant, uh, and became infatuated with photography and, and, and his work in particular, um, I, I decided to go to film school. I went to USC, uh, and then, uh, uh, started working. I actually got a job. I actually got into the union prior to me going to USC. Um, which is ironic. Um, it's <laughs> yeah, a little backwards, but it, it's, well, it, it's like, uh, I was 19. I had started my first year of, a of college and, um, an opportunity came on, came along, which was very difficult in those days to get into the IA, you know, it was much smaller and, uh, they were very, very regimented about it. And so, uh, an opportunity came along, uh, to work as a staff loader at this production company. And if, uh, if they employed me for 30 days in a row, then, you know, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to get in. And so my dad felt that was a great opportunity. Ironically, he was starting Blade Runner at the same time. And there potentially was a loader position on that film. But he decided that it wasn't a guaranteed thing. And this was and that I should do that. And in hindsight, you know, um, of course, I would have loved the experience of being part of the crew of Blade Runner. Um, and I did go every, every night I would go after my own work and stay as long as I could until I couldn't keep my eyes open any longer. Um, but it would have been overwhelming for a 19 year old to be on that set. It was quite quite an intense set. Yeah. I was just going to say when you were on that (laughs) set, what were your impressions? I mean, it's a legendary, that's a, I mean, legendary film, legendary set, like every, in every way, but what was it like? My God. You know, it was, it was enormous. It was, uh. If I if I if my if my history is correct, I believe there was a writer strike going on at the time, and so it was the only big show going on, and it was and it was on uh, the Warner Brothers lot for a lot of it, at least the, the the stuff that was all shot on New York Street in the back, and so I went and would go over there and watch as mu- as much as I could, and you know it was enormous, it was anamorphic, it was uh, 50 ASA, I believe 50 or 100 ASA film. There was huge crews and effects and everything was still, um, you know, in the early stages, you you had blue and green screens and you had visual effects, but it all took enormous amounts of time and it, and it, and it was uh, all done, you know, in hand. It was, we were so far away from this dig- digital revolution. And so um, the thought processes and the meticulous techniques in order to achieve the visuals that they did, it, it was just mind boggling. And 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 the the scale and scope of things and Ridley's um, vision and my dad's innovation in photography, uh, just phenomenal. And and so lucky to have been at least to have gone to visit and to to have been part of it. And then to you know throughout my career and certainly his, you know the references and that that we still make today. I, I started off. Uh, my my photography, my cinematography career um, in music videos and commercials, as many people in the early '80s did or mid '80s did, and um, I I can tell you, like on a day a weekly basis, there would be references to Blade Runner to this day, you know, um, and so and so I got a little bit of that ironically again, you know, I hate to use that word over, but um, uh, when I shot Fight Club, that that still comes up all the time as a reference thing and and uh it's a separate story but that was uh that was one of fincher's goals is to kind of be our our generation's blade runner and in many ways it was 
Um, yeah, but, and 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 that was that was not not just you know uh, photographically, but culturally, and, yeah. and leave a footprint and kind of you know. Blade Runner was in the future and, and ours was more uh, present, but it was really what it was an explanation about in as much as 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 culture was suffering and Blade Runner in the future. This was like kind of an exploitation of what ours was going through, uh, you know, in the in the 90s. It it so. always felt to me a little bit like Blade. I mean, Blade. Uh, sorry, Fight Fight Club. These are two movies that had such a huge impact on me too. But it always felt to me a little bit like what you guys did on Fight Club. Like it was about the moment, but it felt like it could have been in another time. It could have been a little bit in the future. It could have been like it felt sure. out of time, sort of. It, it felt. Uh, it was. It, but it was so. It so captured a moment, you know, in what was sure. happening at that particular time. But um, I think, and I think a lot of that is the visuals, you know. But. Um, Absolutely. So, so, so that was it. I went to film school and I, I was in the IA and, um, you know, stop me if I'm going off course too much. No, but the, no. the interesting thing about film school then versus film school today, um, and I'm a fan of it. I'm a fan of it because I think that uh, not only can you grow up as an artist, but you can grow up as an individual. And that's one of my favorite parts about, you know, the university system and, and, and college. But, you know, everyone's different. That was for me. Um, but in in the 80s, early 80s, when I was in school, you know, 80, 81, 82, um, we didn't have uh, the Internet. We didn't have DVDs and we didn't have any resources to, to see films. And so one of the fantastic parts about film school was the access that you had to the libraries of films that you would not get to normally watch and discuss and explore and learn from the masters of the past. And so yeah. that that was a wonderful thing. And then. Um, USC at that time was, you know, it was all film, of course, and it was very hands-on and you really, you, you know, you had to make films and you had to learn and fall down and beg, borrow and steal. And I think that was a wonderful kind of uh, education into the industry because, you know, regardless of whether it's a $200 million movie or a $2 million movie, you end up still trying to do that, you know. Uh, so true, yeah. At every level, there's not enough, right? There's always like no. more you need, another minute, another dollar. <laughs> yeah, and then you know you can have everything be as precious as it can, and sometimes you're like, "Give me that! I know how to do this. I've done this," you know. And you get those flashbacks <laughs> in school, and and you and you make your day, or you get a shot that was going to be too complicated, or, or you know whatever you have to do to make it make it happen. So that was wonderful. And then I went on, and you know I worked for my father. Uh, for years, and I and and then when my um, my father stopped working uh, from from uh, uh, physical illness, um, I was fortunate enough to meet Sven Nyquist and did seven movies with him. Yeah, so you were an AC, right? Uh, I was a loader, and I was a second, and I was an AC, and I was a camera operator, and then I shot second unit, and then I became a uh, reluctantly became a DP because um, <laughs> Wait, why reluctantly? Well, <laughs> it feels I, like I you did. were on the track the whole time, like doing everything right, and then and then you say like, but I didn't want to be a DP. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know why. I just was lacking confidence, and and I had been around masters for so long, and I felt uh, like you had to really go up this scale and 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 earn this right. And what happened to me is my all the people I met working with my father and me o overly protecting him because of his illness, um, I inadvertently learned to be, uh, I learned an enormous amount, far more than I uh, appreciated. And and the, the interesting thing was when I met Sven, he was already 69. 
And so within the week, first week or two, you know, here's this kid on a set of all these guys that have been working for him for decades. And I'm, he's letting me read the light for him on every setup. He doesn't even get out of his chair. He's like, okay, go tell me what that is. You know, <laughs> because I'd get into, I'd get into, I'd get into debates with him. Like he'd walk out and he'd casually throw it up and walk away. And I'm like, oh my God, that got hit by three different things. Like Sven, can I, can I, can I do it? And he would laugh at me and, and, you know, it was pretty bold for a kid to do that. And I pissed a lot of people off, but in the end, they realized that it was coming from a place like I have zero ego and it was all coming from being protecting people and, and protecting him. And so we went on and did that. And then, so what happened is people like Fincher and, and, uh, different people we had worked with over the years started going like, here, we have this project. I want you to come shoot it. I'm like, who? <laughs> you know, you know, it's Jeff, not Jordan, right? You know, <laughs> and uh, and I did, and and uh, and it, and it worked out. You know, what was the first? So there's uh, there's so many things I wanna I wanna kind of double back on here, but I mean, so I'll just start with you say, you know, I was one of the lucky ones. I was born with a silver spoon, and and there was like legacy, but, but, you know. But, but, there, you... but there's there, there's more to it than that, you know, because I I've grown up with a lot of people that have had the same situation, and they feel entitled, and I felt yes. the opposite. I felt yeah, like. I was... I will never embarrass him or Sven. I will never be the the one that doesn't overperform it. And, and and because of that, I tried twice as hard as everybody else and over uh, compensated. And and I think that's what ultimately, you know, I was so afraid of disappointing them or causing them some kind of uh, embarrassment that I just w- was ridiculously overcompensating. And 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 in that, and, and it's not for everybody, but this is what worked for me. Um, I, I became, you know, better at each position and then, and then acquired all this knowledge to, to find my own career as a cinematographer. Yeah. Because I was going to say the way you worked and the way you talk about it, there's so much humility and there's so much like, I just wanted to make sure I was doing it right and learning. And you took every right step. You didn't shortcut anything, you know, and you didn't, you know, and I think that oftentimes when we, having grown up in Los Angeles myself. I think my father was even striking in that writer's strike. He was a TV writer, the one you're sure. referring to in 1980. But I've been around yeah. it, and I've been around the other people who grew up around it. And a lot of people use that as a way to, to skip a few steps. And, you know, they, sometimes that works for them. But it's yep. not it's not something that from the outside or from the inside or from wherever you are, you always look at it and you're like, oh, man. But, it, you know, it's part of the deal. But it's nice to hear from somebody who is here but who and who went through all those things and was like, but I want to do I want to learn how to do this the right way. And maybe it's possible with, with cinematography that 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 that's the only way to succeed at it. Right. Well, there, there. Yes and no. I mean, I like when I was in film school, one of the, my classmates was was John Schwartzman. And John's had an enormous career as a cinematographer. Um, in fact, he's right now he's in London doing the, the next Jurassic Park. And what he did out of film school, whereas I went and started working on big films as a, as a low man on, you know, low man in the camera department, he went out and started shooting, you know, infomercials and, and industrials and, uh, a, a few of the low budget videos at the beginning. And we, we got to, the, you know, I think he might have beat me by a year or two, but we got to shooting big movies about at the same time. But for me, I got to watch other people solve all these enormous problems and I watched them, how they carried themselves. And I watched aesthetics and, 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 uh, ethics on a set. And 
you know, I'm a slow learner, so I had to see it a lot. <laughs> whereas, whereas like someone like John, he had to make all those discoveries himself and, and fall down and, and figure things out. Um, and so, the, you know, I, I think there's two ways of doing it, but I think it depends on your, on the individuals and, and yeah. your own pers- personalities. Well, you guys both shoot like really beautiful movies. <laughs> so, so, so there's something to be said for, for whatever Thank was you. happening at USC film school at the time. Um, but I think you're right. What film school is, has certainly changed. And, and that time just getting your hands on the ability to shoot. Well, really from that time, right up until maybe the late nineties, it was really hard for anybody to get access to, 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 you know, maybe some big old video cameras, but it was hard to shoot stuff. Like there wasn't, we didn't have this readily available, like get our hands on something, go shoot it. You know, the way that then that's what film school promised you. Right. No. And it was expensive and gear was expensive and cameras were expensive and who could process anything. And, and, uh, and then where would you cut it? And so that's, that was the beautiful thing about uh, film schools, you know, in that era up until and then digital and then it changed and I'm not saying it's not a, a great thing and the, the expectations are much higher now when the kids are far more educated and now they they actually get to shoot a lot more stuff in hand because there's so many different ways of, of producing uh, content right yeah and I I just also like I want to point out because for context for anybody who like so yeah, your father, uh, among other things, shot uh, he shot a, a, many things besides for Blade Runner, but Sven Nykvist is, if people don't know, like one of the great cinematographers of all time, <laughs> arguably, and yeah. shot some like legendary films uh, dating way back, including a lot of Ingmar Bergman movies. So I just want to make sure, you know, contextually, this was like a giant, even at the time you were working with him. And oh, enormous. I, I, he, he did 22 <laughs> Bergman films. Right. And I wonder, like, was it intimidating? Was it like, I mean, you told an anecdote about, about reading the lights for him, but like, how is it, what is it like to step into, you know, can you tell me about working with him at all in that? Yeah, of course. It was, um, it was extremely comfortable for some reason. And I think it was because it was very much going from my father and, and working in the same capacity and, and, and looking up to spend, you know, almost in a, in a, in a fatherly kind of figure. Although I'd say our, say our relationship was more like brothers because half the time he just was telling me stories and laughing and, 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 and pointing out girls on the set, you know, and I was like, Oh my God. Uh, uh, but, but, but again, like another guy, a, a giant in the industry who was very humble, um, yeah. and, and, and would just, you know, tell me phenomenal stories. In fact, you know, he won two Oscars, right? And so he won two Oscars before he got into the union here. So he went to his, his, uh, uh initiation into the, uh, IA at the time. And there was a, a board of, uh, gentlemen that, that were members that would have to approve it. And they were asking him a series of questions. And they asked him, what do you think qualifies you as a cinematographer to get into this union? And he goes, I think it's the two Oscars you gave me. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, they not God, know I know at the moment that they had- <laughs> apparently whomever asked that particular question was unaware of, of his accomplishments in the past. But, oh, my God, what a teed up question and a beautiful answer. Yeah. And so, you know, talking about, you know, we're, we, we definitely want to talk about, cause we're talking about awards, 
nominated for Tales from the Loop for an Emmy. Sure. Um, but you've also, you know, you've been nominated for a couple of Oscars as well. Yeah. What is that like? <laughs> I mean, like, is that, was that in, in for Social Network and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? Um, well, you know, you've been up for all kinds of awards, but what is that experience like? And, and after having shot so many things, you know, and had a long, successful career. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal, right? It's, it's, it's a weird thing. Like we're one of the few industries that pat ourselves on the back, but it's something that, that is so ingrained in us, uh, uh, that it's a beautiful thing. And who, who doesn't want to get invited to the dance and, and, you know, hopefully come home with the prize, but, but either way it was, you know, having grown up here, having grown up in this industry, having watched my grandfather and my dad, and then to finally actually have arrived there was, was really kind of an overwhelming uh, and personal accomplishment, regardless of what it means in the real world. It was, yeah. it was special to me just because of the heritage and how long we've all been in this. And, and, it, and, it, and it, it meant a lot. It was a, it was a really wonderful, fun experience. And, and it was all with, with wonderful cinematographers who I'm friends with. And so, it was a it was great nights, and the the second time um, I was able to bring my daughter, which was you know very special oh, to share so cool. <laughs> share that with her. So uh, it was great, you know. Yeah. One of these I, days, you know, I, I've been to the dance twice. I just haven't gotten to dance yet. So one of these <laughs> days, maybe I'll get to dance, but uh, but uh, I gotta go. I gotta go earn that. So you keep uh, you know the kind of things you're doing. I feel like you keep <laughs> shooting them, but I so. So you you got into like it seems like as you mentioned like you were you were firsting and seconding on you know big movies for legendary yep. cinematographers. You worked in the music video world a little bit in the into the early and mid nineties. Is that part of how you and David Fincher crossed paths initially? No, actually, the first time was um, my dad shot a music video called Oh Father. It was a Madonna video, and it was the last one on that album. And uh, black and white, beautiful video. And I met Fincher on that. And I got a call from him like uh, maybe a week after uh, we had finished uh, principal photography. And he goes, I have some inserts I want to shoot. And I'm like, okay. He goes, uh, meet me at Panavision tomorrow at noon. And I'm go, okay, great. I'll see you then. He goes, oh, by the way, bring your light meters. I'm like, what? <laughs> what for? You know? <laughs> And I showed up and, uh, you know, Madonna was there and we shot some inserts of pearls dropping at high speed and we shot stitches in her mouth and we shot these things. But it, but before shooting, you know, he comes in and he's like, I want to do this, this kind of here. I lined it up and he goes, all right, light it. I'll be back in half an hour. I'm like, uh-oh. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I hadn't really like, he hadn't really explained the whole process to me at that point, you know, like what, I'm sorry, he hadn't explained the expectations, but of course, you know, I, 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 I lit it and, you know, I matched my dad's work and uh, for those shots and they all fit seamlessly and he enjoyed that. And then uh, there was a few other things like commercials and different things where they needed, they needed a, a, a small crew to go finish off. You know, David did these AT&T spots that were, they actually they brought them back recently because it was maybe a 20 year anniversary oh i'm familiar and, with them <laughs> yeah <But> go on <laughs> um and they were so absolutely spot on about what we were expecting in the future technologically they were right and how they were 100 percent right <laughs> yeah and how our lives would change but at the moment when we were doing them that was it seemed you know really progressive and one of the scenes was a uh, was what would become an ipad or a tablet 
on the beach and and he just didn't feel like the beaches here in California supported the 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 story they were they kind of were underwhelming so we went to St. John in the Caribbean and it was just him and I and an AD and his producer which eventually became his wife and uh and so I went and shot that for him and so I started this thing of doing these little shots and pickup shots and I shot a few things on music videos over the years and then when you know we started Aliens 3 together my dad and and David and I and then the studio felt like my dad's health was going to be a problem down the road although nothing had been a problem up to that point but it was really a, a, it was really like a not a pleasant set to be on and there was a lot of contention between David and the producers and us being in London and 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 so it worked in the end it became something better for us not to be part of it and we came back and we did a movie called Final Analysis with Phil Juana which was much better to be back here for my father and all that anyways that started a series of things and I shot second unit on seven and and, 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 I, and I operated the B camera and I shot second unit on the game and then when Fight Club came along, you know, I assumed that I was going to meet him to to discuss all the second unit work. And yeah. So it was uh, it was uh, overwhelming when he when he said to me like, read this tonight and let me know tomorrow if you want to shoot it. And, and you know, and I and I'm internalizing that like I'm screaming inside without saying anything, going, I don't need to read it. I don't need it. <laughs> I know, but um, but I put my best game face on and said. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll take a look tonight and I'll let you know tomorrow, you know, and, I, and then I did cartwheels to my car, you know, going, are you crazy? But, uh, that was, that was fun. And, 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 uh, and to circle back to what I said before, you know, he, we sat down and talked about it and he goes, you know, I think this may be one of the best scripts I ever get to direct. This will probably be one of the best scripts that Brad gets to perform in and um i want it to be our kind of our 90s version culturally of what blade runner was and it probably won't make a lot of money wow and that was that was then but but then you know two years later and all the effort put into it and all the blood sweat and tears of course you want it you know you're judged by unfortunately by box office that 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 is the measure of the benchmark that people set a successful movie to. I mean, years later, you can then be judged culturally by it and, and by the actual filmmaking of it. But initially, you know, it's always the box office resonates. And so it was, it, it was not well received when it first came out and mostly because it was kind of mismarketed, which changed David's approach to filmmaking. And now he's 100% controls all the marketing and all the films that he does because what had happened is Columbine had happened that previous summer. And so there was a great fear about having a movie that promoted violence. And, yeah. and so we, we made all these commercials that were irrelevant, irrever, irreverent, Irre commercials. irreverent Yeah. Yeah. About the movie and not about the, the, the boxing or the, the fist fighting with the bare knuckle fighting, which was really just a metaphor to get you to these places. And so we, we did all these really funny, funny, um, commercials promotions for the film and the studio didn't use them and and then when we saw the first um, commercials out for it it was all about the fighting and it was like wait a second i thought that was the point and you know i might i use an example like my parents said we thought this was a boxing movie and had you not shot it we probably wouldn't have seen it and really that's not what it's about you know yeah so so you that guys was unfortunate. Were... 
ahead of your time, obviously, <laughs> and and out of step with and and like and I think that movie was. I'm amazed um, that he knew that in a way that he came that when he came to you initially and he said like this is not this is probably going to be like this this is a very special thing. And it's also maybe not going to make a lot of money. Like he kind of got it, you know, that's, that's incredible, that foresight. Um, I can only speak as like, you know, I, I was, I was of an age where I was just an audience at the time. And I remember seeing it and being blown away. And I think a lot of people in a certain age range were, um, it was like a defining right. thing for us to see. And, uh, and yet the world at large didn't seem to be reacting to it the right way. Like, like, like so many of these things. And I wonder if, if part of his feeling of having you on that one was like, he knew that you had experience and, and like, and also knowledge through your father of what it's like to work on those kinds of movies. Um, I, I maybe, you know, maybe, but, um, you know, it, it's one of it's one of those things when you put all that effort in. You can say that at the beginning because it is an enormously complicated book to to make a movie about, right? Yes. And yes. and and uh, David had it all worked out in his head, and we were trying to all catch up, and so um, it was hard to see at first. Although we knew that we were getting great performances, and we were all laughing, and the things were so so funny and pushing so many boundaries, and we were and we were making a, a you know excellent um, quality. Uh, content so we knew it all from that standpoint we just didn't know how it re would resolve in the end and and ultimately you know um when it came out in dvd it was enormous and and just was top of the top of the sales for a long long time and then became a you know cultural phenomena and 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 even i think it's in the i think it's in the national archives you yeah know, how they put a couple of movies every year in it, which was, was really fun for me because Blade Runner's there as well. So ah, that's it, cool. <laughs> dad and dad and I both have one in there, which is really kind of so cool. cool. Um, you know, if, if, just, just kind of chatting. Um, I, you know, I Blade Runner suffered kind of the same situation. You know, it, I think the reason why it, it was far more of an intellectual story that provoked thought. And I think mm -hmm. people thought they were going to get a, a second version of a star Wars Absolutely, and, it, and, it, yeah. and it wasn't that, I mean, it had every bit the, the technology in, in society, uh, but it didn't, it, but you had to think about all these concepts and about humanity and, 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 and those that want what we have, we have. And so it was interesting. I, I did a film a few years ago, called K-19 The Widowmaker with Harrison Ford. And we became pretty good pals on it. And Harrison, obviously, you know, was friends with my dad in, in Blade Runner. And he They've been in the me, trenches together. <laughs> yeah, they, they had. They, he told me these great stories um, and closed kind of some missing parts for me about, you know, all the books that have come out, all the rumors about Blade Runner, all the stories that you hear. And of course I was there and saw some, and then I had all my dad's experiences. And then crew members years later, I would hire guys that worked with my father and, and hear their versions of it too. And then to sit with Harrison and listen to his versions and the, and the voiceover and how things happen, I felt like I got really close. And then last year, uh, Ridley was considering doing Merlin. The, uh, this, this, um, it's, it's, yeah. I, I don't want to be, it might be seven books, but this was, he Ridley was going to do the first one. Uh -huh. And, and he, I interviewed for it. And I, I, and again, it was this weird thing. Like I should have been nervous beyond belief 
but there was this familiarity and this comfort and we sat down and the first half was just talking about family and then he started talking about Blade Runner and he completed my circle and it was the most like I'm just I was smiling I called my brother as soon as I got in my car and I'm like I might be the only person that got all these all three sides of it from these perspectives oh, man. and I had a be better understanding of it and it was really fun and uh, um, you know he's such such the master filmmaker and to, to be in his company and and I've no, and I've been lucky I've known him for a long time I worked with Tony uh, on many many commercials um, I actually shot the last one before uh, before uh, you know his yeah. accident and and I worked with all the kids um, Luke Jordan and Jake so it was uh, it was really kind of a, a fun fun interview you know he ended up not not doing the movie so it didn't right. matter but but i wouldn't trade that experience for you know for anything. so one day will you ever be or does this only ever going to exist in your in your mind but will we ever get <laughs> your book the whole story <laughs> like like having spe having spent time with every individual side of this massive set legendary making of a movie like you could put it all together for us i'm not sure you will but you could <laughs> Uh, I'll think about it. I, I don't know. Some, some some stories are best left smiling in my head. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I can imagine that because even when you said you were talking to Harrison Ford on Widowmaker, I was thinking like, oh, please tell me some of the Harrison Ford side of the story. But I'm not going to put you on the spot because I'm sure that a lot of that is stuff people don't want to have out there. I'll tell you what, you call me later and I'll tell you. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe one day I'll, I'll push you to write that book. <laughs> in the meantime, though, um, in the meantime, uh, so yeah, so Widowmaker was also Catherine Bigelow, right? There so was, that was another, yeah. like, so you, you have worked with so many different, like really uh, important filmmaking voices from this generation and like that that's just another person like how do you move between them like what is there a way you know you uh, uh, you've done a lot of movies with david fincher and i want to get back to that in a second because mm -hmm. you guys i imagine built some shorthand but you know jumping between these people what is that like and how do you do you approach each one differently um yeah i i, I think you seek out uh you know a connection and you seek out uh commonality you know and you don't have to agree on everything it's, it's 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 great to debate and push and fight your way through things but it has to be a comfortable situation and you have to see at least eye to eye in certain things and and have an understanding of what each person wants to bring to to that project and and then build from there um it's one of those things like you you got to be careful who you get in bed with because once you start a project there's no easy way out you know it's like you're in it for the next six months and there's no disclaimers uh you know that come up during the during the show so so you really want to like know about people know their work uh and and make sure that you guys are all good and even then things you know you, you can never be you know 100 percent about anything but but uh, at least going into something you want to feel like you you have a team that supports you and you can't wait to support them. And you have a, at least a common vision of how, it, how this, how the whole thing comes together. And then I like embellish the, the individuals because they're all different, you know, um, you know, Fincher is, is exacting. So the contributions you make in his world, you have to like skirt around and push and you have to say, look, this is a better way to do it and prove it. Whereas something with Catherine, she's like, I need to talk to the actors, please, you know, uh, block this out. You know, you know the, the the gist of the scene, and you know where the weight needs to be. 
um, block this out for me. So it, it, it's a give and take, and you know, and and you know, Mark Romanek is very collaborative, and he's somebody that has a clear idea, but he's extremely open to to the contributions, or he he embellishes you to to you know put your fingers on it too, and then and then sits back and and orchestrates. So everybody does it different, and I I, I think that every way of doing it is 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 extremely exciting and gives you so many different like. Uh, ways to to create and to uh do you tend to uh work with a lot of the same crew that you bring along into for each thing or does this kind of depend or like do you have like a is there a crew you have on the fincher project and then maybe a different yeah crew? yeah um it it changes often you know but but you know there's a familiarity and, a, and an advantage to to having you know a, a crew that you're comfortable with and supporting each other but i tell you it's always it's it, it's extremely uh terrifying and exciting to me when you end up going someplace you've never been with complete strangers and <laughs> I, I i like it because it forces me not to rely on and take things for granted you know i have yeah. to go back and i have to analyze everything like i know with my grip and my gaffer that I, these things will happen automatically but i don't know that when i go somewhere else and it's super refreshing uh and keeps you on your edge and, and that's that's you know that's a, an important thing. I think everyone's different, but for me, being a little bit nervous sometimes is, is a good thing. It keeps me on my toes. You know, I, I talk to people sometimes about embracing fear. Uh, you know, it, yeah. as long as fear doesn't debilitate you as an individual, then fear can make you better and keep you on point and keep you fresh and keep pushing boundaries. And, and um, it works for me, you know. But some people it overwhelms them, and that's that. That's then that's not a good way to go. Was but that, you told me that you there was an anecdote at the beginning of your time with with working with Fincher, where you know he left you alone to shoot the pearls dropping or something. Was there a little bit of that, like, oh, okay, I have to figure this out by myself, and I don't know what he really wants, and that like initially drove you, or was like, is that yeah, of course, of, yeah, of course, that, that's always there. But but then like I, you know, I. My dad shot the original. I, I did have to look great. And I don't want to, you know, I, I looked up to Fincher, uh, you know, it, it, it was very clear then um, of, of what kind of filmmaker he is. And so I didn't, I wanted to live up to that. And so you push yourself and, and um, for me, it works. And he had a lot, you, you know, he is notorious for being specific. Um, and did you, yep. do you, have you guys in some way formed you know, in your partnership in a number of movies, we'll mention like, you know, uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo and The Social Network. Like over these these projects, have you built some like shorthand or expectation where like as specific as he is, like you kind of always know or do you guys have to go through everything like over and over again and really like what what's the process like? I mean, I just I want to peel back the curtain a little bit. <laughs> Well, no, they, I mean, you can look at them and you can see um, that they all fit into a particular kind of family, but they're all different. And, and, and the way we lens it and the way the camera moves and the way the light is and the color of light, there's all subtle differences to it. I mean, he and I see eye to eye almost always aesthetically. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so easy for us to, to uh, work together. Um, and of course, you know, once you know a system or you guys have created a system together, it, it's very economical. It really works well and you can, you can accomplish a lot. And I think that trust is, is enormous, you know, and so that has always facilitated us in, 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 
and and pushing boundaries and and you know the one beautiful thing about um about a lot of people but you know particularly david is uh he he he's that guy that says the buck ends here in other words you know i remember on fight club there's a scene when ed norton is laying in bed and he's got insomnia and he's against the you know the sheets were supposed to be tea stained and the art department, uh, our uh, prop department, somebody had not got them as dark as we wanted them to. So they were much whiter than we anticipated. So now you have that kind of problem where you have someone that's supposed to be night. You have to see who they are, but you don't want these sheets being the brightest thing in the in the room. And we kept pushing and kept pushing. And I was like, I don't know, I don't know, David. That seems too. I, I, I it's way lower than we normally would underexpose something, you know. And I, I'm worried that the image is going to be too dark. Keep pushing. And, uh, and dailies the next day, it was too dark. And my initial reaction is like, I fucked up. That's my problem. I, I'll take the full responsibility. Um, and he's like, are you kidding? He's like, when, how do you expect to break boundaries and to push the envelope unless we take risk? So this is, you know, we have 135 days of shooting. This is two hours. We'll shoot it again tomorrow. The sheets will be right and, and, and you'll fix it. And that was an enormous thing for me to have that have because when you're when you are out there, you know, creating new things, taking risks um, with techniques or or light or pushing boundaries to know that you're supported. It just is, is you know, you still look, there's a lot of money involved and you have to be responsible. You can't just be cavalier out there and, and reckless. But but if you are doing art and you are creating things, um you know, not, it doesn't always work out sometimes. And to, to understand that and appreciate it's not the end of the world, um, at least in, 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 in a Fincher film, then it afforded me to be more comfortable when I took other projects and, 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 and you know, applied that same kind of uh, uh, integrity and pushing and, you know, uh, fearlessness, I guess. He protected your ability to fail. Like, he protected your guys' ability to take a chance and for it not to work and then try it again. Right. That's what it sounds exactly. Like. Exactly. I mean, look, we don't fail very often, but, but, but there are times when you go too far and you don't know it, you know, especially then, cause it was all on film, you know, yeah. and, you know, and lenses were slower and the lights were bigger. And uh, so this, uh, this segues into something I'm really curious about. I, I would almost describe like the way you've shot. I also should mention gone girl, which you also shot with him. It feels like the two of you, the movies you do with him, it's almost like it's black and white in color sometimes. I don't know how <laughs> else to describe it. <laughs> but, I love that. But but I, that's how it feels to me. And I don't know, like, it feels like you that sort of was innovated by you guys in a way. And, I, and, and all of them have something of that. Like, it does feel like you kept pushing those shadows and, and like what we can see and what we can't see. And... Uh, my question <laughs> is through the years of your collaboration, the technology has changed a lot. Like, like fight sure. club was film. Um, and then we jumped to now and it's like, how many things are shooting film? What do you guys shoot on and how have you, ch has, has the process changed? How have you guys worked to continue that kind of legacy through the way that the technology has shifted? Right. Well, David has always pushed technology. You know, he's an enormously brilliant guy who understands all aspects of filmmaking and, and is really into the, the, the technology. And so he shot uh, Zodiac and Benjamin Button on the Viper. 
And when Social Network came along, um, Red Camera had been out for about a, a year, the Red One. And one of David's closest friends is Steven Soderbergh. And Steven had shot Che with the first versions of the Red and were, was extremely excited about it and pushing it. So on Social Network, you know, we went through our due diligence and tested out different uh, digital formats. But uh, Soderbergh loaned us his two cameras and they, they had just been upgraded to this new chip called the Mysterium X. So we were the first guys to have it and we fell in love with it and decided that that's what we were going to shoot Social Network on and uh, started this relationship with J Jim Gennard and Jared Land at Red Cinema. And it just continued throughout, the, throughout and still is enormous for both of us. Although, you know, I didn't do anything on Mindhunter, but they're all still very much a part of it. And by that, I mean this, like each time a new camera, a new chip, a new sensor came out, we somehow ended up being the first to get it. So SocialNet was the Mysterium, Mysterium X. Uh, Dragon Tattoo was the Helium. Gone Girl was the Dragon. Do you Dragon, guys test them a lot when you get the new? I mean, I, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but what's the process like? It's like, hey, it's a new chip. It's capturing a new amount of information or the information's a little different. Yeah. Like, how are we going to learn this this tool? I mean, I'm sure it's really exciting, but I'm, I'm fascinated by that. It was it was easy because it was always from the same it was the same system yeah and all the things that kept advancing were the amount of resolution the evolution of the color science the latitude so yeah. and 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 the and the user friendliness the ergonomics of it both in the shape of the camera and in the menus and and, and your options so and we got to participate in in you know requiring certain things or things that worked and things that didn't work and they were working hand in hand with us. And so did you guys we ever communicate a little, a little bit to them? Spoiled. <laughs> yeah. But did you ever communicate? I want you to continue, but I'm curious also, did you ever communicate afterwards things like, Hey, after social network, these are the things that I think we would love to see like stuff like that. Always, oh, always. Cool. And, That's... and, and hung out there. And, uh, David was an enormous part of that to, to the point where like on, I want to say mine hunter, they made a camera called a xenomorph, which was, ergonomically kind of like different than any of the digital cameras out there. It almost looked like Geiger from Aliens had designed yeah. the body of it, but it <laughs> fit on your shoulder because originally I think the concept behind Mindhunter was going to be all handheld. And so they made these things that fit on your shoulder perfectly. Weight was perfectly balanced and could grab the map box. That was a solid unit part of the camera. And uh, I, without boring you, a whole bunch of other things that, that work perfectly for that. It and won't bore end, us. Like you're talking to a community <laughs> that's going to love that laughs that stuff up. But. <laughs> well, you know, he, he just he committed to using the the, uh, the uh, Leica uh, Simulac C's. And, and so they're all the same size. And so the, the map box would clip on and the motors were inside the, the barrel underneath the map box. And it was all one solid thing. So there was no cables, no external motors, you know. Um, and it was just with one compact unit that, uh, that, that was amazing. And in the end, they didn't do my hunter handheld, you know, they used more traditional kind of camera movement, but, but, uh, just, just the reds, um, ability to accommodate us and to innovate along with the projects has always been this wonderful gift that we shared and, uh, and so I, that's who I end up, you know, working with a lot. Um, 
And, uh, and that's where that came from. And then the thing about social network, which was so rewarding for me individually, but I know it was one of our goals at the beginning was we were right in that world where there was still half the movies were being shot on film, maybe more than half. And, and, uh, at the first few screenings that we had, nobody knew what we had shot on. Oh yeah. No, I mean, yeah. and that's, that's that part of why I asked smile on my face. Yeah. You know? I was like, are you kidding? That's fantastic. Like, you know, that we're there, then we've arrived and now we can start embellishing this. I think that that's why I'm, I'm, I had to ask because I feel like you seamlessly crossed through. Like, I, I mean, I, I couldn't do like a side by side and I don't have the eye to pick out the pixels, but I really feel like from each movies, you kept this look, you guys never. And I know as the technology you were using changed, you maintained a fidelity to your look and style without losing what was cinematic about it. So it's kind of fascinating to think about. Um, did you, did you guys use red on tales from the loop? What did you shoot on? Yes and no, um, because uh, the the idea behind um, Tales from the Loop, like the visual language that we wanted to to utilize, um, was large format and 70 mil glass. Uh, and there's a few reasons why we chose that. But Panavision has, you know, the, undoubtedly has the best inventory of, of large format glass. And Panavision has the DXL2 which is a rehoused red. In other words, Panavision took the red sensor and put it in their own camera body with their own ergonomics and their own, you know, uh, uh, interface. And so for me, it was a, it was a per perfect marriage because now I got the sensor that I'm so comfortable with that I know latitude and color science and uh, ISO and the inventory of lenses to choose from uh to details from the loop and so that's what i did so it was, when i say it was a combination it's a little bit of both but it was it was uh and then i and then to throw in you know because life isn't complicated enough i wanted to make more challenges for myself <laughs> i went i went through the inventory there and found these lenses that, that dan sasaki was just starting to release and i put them in the rotation of tests when we were shooting and both Mark Romanek and I fell in love with it. They go, that's it. That's the, that's what this, this show wants to look like. And at the time there was only three lenses, you know? And so what we three? had three lenses. <laughs> what were their uh, lenses? Oh God. They were like, uh, did they limit, 35. did it significantly limit what you could do just because it was those three or did you? Well, like no, the story doesn't end there. So okay. we had the three <laughs> lenses and, and then I called down and I said, we love these, but I can't do a show. I mean, I'm going to have two cameras. It's a two-camera show, and we're going to have a second unit that does uh, uh, plates and inserts and that kind of stuff. And uh, he goes, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll make you a few more. I'm like, oh, okay. And <laughs> the, cool. these, these bastardized lenses would show up that, like, the, the markings were off. It was like a 54-millimeter lens and a 28 and some, like, you know, 62, like, because that's just what the parts were that he had to put together that still had the same you know, kind of characteristics of, 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 of glass, but, you know, without taking the time to actually make these perfect, you know, a set that matched up, you know, 50, 65, 75, 80, whatever it happened to be. And so we ended up with about <clears throat> six of the Pana set, Pana primes, and then we offset that with uh, 70 mil Primos. And, you know, and then I would add a little bit of uh, diffusion to kind of get some of the uh, artifacting that that was so attractive about the Panaspeed. 
Nice. It's like I, I've heard people say this, and I'm and I'm. It sounds like you feel this way, but I've heard people say that today, that nowadays, like the lens you match with the sensor is kind of creates your stock almost. Like that's what your film stock is. Um, like, yeah. like you pick a lens or you combine lenses with a different sen- with whatever sensor you're working with, and that's what gives you the look. Um, yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, you know, as these cameras get get better and better resolution you know, you're going to start wanting to like shoot through a Coke bottle because you need <laughs> some, some way to get back some of that texture, uh, that, that the, you know, that the, the resolution is cutting through so that we can get back to something that that's more tangible. Um, but you know, for, for me and for David, uh, you know, and it's just two schools of thought. We, we always liked coming, you know, we would like to start with the best and we'll step on it later and we will mess it up and we will make it whatever, you know, our, our uh, look for that project wants to be as opposed to starting with something that is of lesser quality. And that's what, that's what it is. You know, some people are, are more comfortable going that route because it can't be manipulated later. But when you, when you have the relationship that David and I do and trust that I, you know, I know, that he finishes regardless, you know, it's not going to be handed off to an editor and going, we're out of money and out of time. And you know, there's going to be a half hour color correction today and that's it. That would never happen on those projects. So we're so comfortable with going in with the most amount of information and then, you know, augmenting it as we will. Right. Except like back in the, in the fight club days when it was like, what you got in the camera is what you got. (laughs) Like if that That sheet's too white, that sheet's too white. Like you can't change that. It seems so archaic now when you think back about sitting in a room uh, uh, at one of the labs and yeah. looking at a, a at a, a analog footage counter on the side going by and telling the guy it's two points too dark and it's two points too green, meaning that we only had red, green, and blue, and you had brighter or darker. That's it. That's all you had. And you, by the time he writes it down, four shots have gone by. Yeah. Did you? you know what uh, I mean? Like. Do you miss shooting that way on any level or is it just not? I, I love film and I loved the magic and I loved thinking I knew exactly what it was going to be and always being surprised that it was better than I thought. Um, Because there's this magic that happens in the photochemical process that we're all scientists or we're artists or we're both, but nobody nobody knows exactly what it's going to be you have a really good idea and like you know you match everything and, and it is but there was always this little bit of mystery magic that went on and 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 it was always so beautiful and now when i look back i mean as as a cinematographer i'm just envious of how easy it was to light people yeah <laughs> and and by that i mean this you know it, it counters what i just said about the high resolution it's not friendly to faces. And so you have to work considerably harder to be complimentary to, 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 to people. Um, but the bonuses outweigh that, but film was so forgiving and, and I didn't know it at the time, you know, none of us did. We like, this is not forgiving at all. And we worked really hard to, we had no concept of what things I'm sure you remember, (laughs) but I remember the first time we started seeing like HD and digital, like really high quality broadcasts and images. We were like, Whoa, that's a little startling. You know, like it was some faces Uh, overwhelming. Yeah. They didn't look right. And so it's taken time to figure that out. And uh, yeah, 
nobody knew that film was as forgiving as and as creamy as it was. All this terminology we didn't use as much because it was just a given, right? That, that's right. And so, you know, I love it. Uh, I would shoot it shoot in a second if uh, if the opportunity came up. Um, but I got to tell you, speaking honestly, I I don't I don't. Uh, I don't miss waking up at four in the morning, calling the lab to make sure I could show up that day. <laughs> uh, and, and I mean, obviously with something like Tales from the Loop, you're creating, like it's the perfect thing for us to, uh, of this topic because it's melding like this kind of like super real, like hyper real sci-fi world with something that feels grounded, right? That's like the art that inspires it too. And, you know, you could shoot it, you have to shoot it in a way that feels like open to the digital world for, for the effects, but also that feels like real and human. Right. That was, that is exactly what my, what my goal was. I mean, for me, it was a great opportunity to create a visual style that stayed grounded when reality was suspended, you know, to keep the drama without losing the humanity to immerse the viewer without getting in the way of it. I just felt like, if you're going to take people and you're going to pull the rug out from under them, if I'm doing that with the light too, you're going to miss the nuances of, 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 of the messages and, yeah. and of the story. And I thought Nathaniel Halperin just, just killed it and conceptually and wrote these beautiful uh, episodes that I thought it was better to put it on a plate and, and, and create a look. Uh, and I think we did and to create camera movement um, and, and then let the, let the, the talent, take away the story and run with it. And, you know, you, you have an obligation to keep people immersed visually because that's you know, the essential part of storytelling. Um, but I thought like if I showboated that it would just, it would, it would distract. And, 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 um, so we did it, we did it with, with, you know, we did it with subtlety and we did it with depth of field and we did it with, elongated camera movement and we did it with playing scenes out longer than you might normally do it and and utilized um uh camera movement to 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 concentrate coverage and or eliminate condense things a little and and let things play out a little bit more and so i really was with happy with the way it looks and the way that the the camera helped tell the story and how we felt like we were with this little girl and her and her fear in this world, um, in the yeah. lost world, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing because television is, is in such a wonderful state now. And there's so much beautiful content coming out to try to reinvent the wheel. You're, you're fooling yourself, but to take something and then twist things slightly to enhance a particularly good story was a really fun challenge to have, you know? Yeah, it's I mean it's so cinematic and more and more television is bringing cinematic talents like you or David Fincher into the fold so we're getting that quality of storytelling visually and otherwise like on in TV, you know, and it's it's great. I mean there's just so much out there. Um but yeah, what's fascinating about this is that it's like these kinds of effects uh and the way they're blended into the world, it's like kind of, you know, it's not what you're, you're what we used to expect in television, you know. No, not at all. And, and, uh, you know, we, we kind of all agreed that, that, uh, it was a winter story. Our episode was a winter story. And, and the filmmakers that came to mind most were Bergman and Tchaikovsky and Kowalski, I can't even say it, Kowalski. Yeah. And, um, we watched 
you know, we watched those movies and kind of embellished their camera movement and the pace and positions and tempo. And, uh, I, you know, it was, it, it was a bold choice because you're, you're talking about audiences that are used to watching Game of Thrones and, right. and things that have so much more energy. And this didn't, this, this was, you know, this was the, this was the Blade Runner versus the Star Wars of, of in, in sci-fi where it was mostly conceptual and, and the human experience affected by these choices that they make. And so, um, it's funny. I hadn't it, thought about the Bergman influence, but now that I'm thinking about the pilot, I definitely imagine it. I can see it. And then funny also because you worked with Bergman's DP. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> so coming full circle, did that, did that work its way in at all? Were you thinking about him? Uh, you know, anytime I'm in the cold, I'm thinking about it in <laughs> <laughs> winter light and all those issues that come up. But uh, yeah, you know, he's always there. Um, you know, I, I, I think aesthetically Sven was a little, um, uh, more liberal with contrast than my dad. My dad always pushed it harder huh. and I'm more, I'm more drawn to my father's work than Sven's, which, you know, Sven's earlier work was beautiful and had as much contrast. Some of his later stuff got a little more, um, pastel, mm. softer, um, uh, and, and, and I, you know, I've done that as well. I did a movie called down with love, which was all about that. It's all about color. But yeah. It's, it's color that, and, and softness, but that was an interesting movie at the point in time it exists because it was sort of using aesthetic to create period, you know, like using, it, it's like, it Hey, was. we're going to, I remember seeing it and thinking, Oh, this is cool. They're trying to show me the time period by using like the look of the stock of that time, you know? Exactly. And, you know, we, used, you know, we shot anamorphic and we did, you know, it was on film of course. And, and the, the way that, the, you know, the sets that we built and the, the scale of them and the perspective of them and light choices all tried to be an homage to those uh, romantic comedies of the, of the late 50s and early 60s. Yeah, it was very colorful, which is like, you know, different, extremely different from some of the other stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I don't want to keep you. I, I would keep you forever just because I want to hear all the, the, <laughs> the Blade Runner stories. But I want to end soon. And I want to ask um, something that I we think about a lot, like you guys, when you're working with with David Fincher and in, in other things, obviously everything. But there's a lot of ca camera movement is like a big part mm -hmm. and like very it feels very specific and story focused. And I'm just curious. And I know a lot of our you know, there's so many video essays out there in the community <laughs> that we are in about like why you the, the camera moves that way or this way. Like, can you take us a little bit into the, the process of blocking out those kinds of sequences together and what motivates your choices with camera movement? But you're talking about with David, correct? Yeah, yeah. When you guys are working okay. together and, you know. Yeah. I mean, every day you're on the set with him, it, 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 you learn something. Um, he's that clever and that immersed uh, and gives 100%. He's so dedicated to creating uh, memorable images and, 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 and a movie that, that you, um, that doesn't give you any opportunities to get out of it. And by that, I mean this, and I'll, I'll talk about the movement in a second, but I remember watching social network the first time in an audience and he, with an audience and he leaned over to me and he said, watch. And 
you open up and it's the bar room and you see the two characters, but there's a lot of noise and almost everyone in the theater leans forward in their seat to try to hear better, to see what, hear what they're saying. And slowly, you know, the background, the background noise starts to, to soften and you can hear them, uh, hear their words more, more uh, clearly. And his point is, and his general philosophy in making movies is, is that once I get you on the ride, I'm not going to let you off until you're back at the train station, you know? So, <laughs> so I'm not going to give you any reason to disengage. For example, mistakes, out of focus, eye lines, uh, props, a, a cup that was here and now it's here. Um, any, any kind of anything that whether consciously or subconsciously allows you to disengage for a moment, you know, you, you may walk out of the movie going, wow, that was a great movie, but there's something that's not quite settling for you. And, and that, that we try not to let happen. And so that, you know, in that approach, you tend to try to do and make things as, as perfect or seamless as possible. Some people will say that that's not organic enough, but, but there's no perfect way of making movies. Some people matching is, is means nothing to them and it's all about the story and that works just fine too. But in, in David's case, this is what he prescribes to do. So back to the camera movement, nothing happens by accident. Uh, if you'll notice in, in many of the stories, and the camera movement is different for everything. In seven, we ran around with a lot of handheld and we had, we shook cameras and we, we, uh, put, uh, attached them to sawzalls to shake them during helicopter shots and different things like all kinds of things to, to increase the energy and, and, uh, but in shows like Gone Girl or Social Network or Dragon Tattoo, the camera tends to stay with an actor. And when an actor moves, the camera moves. And when the actor stops, the camera stops because you want to be with them and you want to be in their world or experiencing whatever it is that we want them to be experiencing at that moment. And so the camera tends to be driven by the talent. And that dictates the speed of movements. That dictates like we tend to, when someone gets up or down in a chair, you have an option of tipping them down, tipping up, yeah. or you can, or you can drop the camera so you stay with them. And we always drop the camera, so you stay with them. So there is no tilting. You know, in a perfect world, it would all spin around, drop, lock in. They go down, the camera goes down. So you're you're never disengaged from them. And that's just part of, uh, you know, that's just a way of telling stories. You know, another thing that we, we like to do is we, as opposed to, you know, using a 75-millimeter lens for a close-up, we'll use a 40-millimeter lens. The reason behind that is it's still... There's no kind of uh, distortion. It's very complimentary, yet it gives you enough space around the person to not ever lose where they are. You keep things in context. You're not all of a sudden in this blurry void that does no meaning. You're right. still in the set and you're still in the environment. And that gives more context to the story. And that's at least, you know, a philosophy that we both prescribe to. So those are a few little... Uh, that, that's <laughs> such a good... It's like a, you just gave like a masterclass in like how to motivate like and why you might motivate some of those decisions. That's so good. Um, I, yeah, I, 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 if there's one more thing I just wanted to, to last, 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 last thing. Do you have any, if sure. you had any advice for an up and coming filmmaker or for somebody starting out or for somebody looking for ways in, like what would you say in the current... I would play? say... Uh, I would say watch as many films as you can um, and shoot as much as you can. 
and you may not know what your style is yet. You may not have a style. Like I hate it when people try to brand you and put you into a box because I think each each opportunity creates its own own opportunities to 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 find something new. And even if even if it resembles something you've done before, it's still going to be something different. So don't don't let people like uh, put you in a box, but also don't put yourself in a box. Always push your own boundaries. Always test new things. Always try to find something and 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 let fear be your uh, friend, you know, because it keeps you going and it pushes boundaries and, and you don't become uh, complacent. But uh, that's, uh, that's it. That's a great answer. Yeah. I, I When you were talking about the using the lens and stuff, I just kept thinking about how much it feels like a hit, almost like a Hitchcock thing, like that mm-hmm. idea of just locking you into the place and not giving you that what you said, no reason to leave, no reason to look away, no reason to defocus, like just like the way he his movies can do that to you and uh you and the movies you work with with david fincher do that so i again thank you so much for taking the time to do this thanks so much for listening uh as always you can email any questions comments concerns thoughts what we're doing right what we're doing wrong to editor at nofilmschool.com or ask at nofilmschool.com i always want to hear from you um please like rate subscribe to the podcast leave a comment follow us on facebook follow us on Twitter, head over to nofilmschool.com and check out what else we have going on there and explore the rest of our interview podcasts. We have a few coming up around now. We have one with Don Porter who made uh, a documentary called The Way I See It about photographers who have amazing access to the office of the president of the United States. So that's really revelatory and fascinating. Um, And so is her story. Um, We also have a great interview, one of my favorites that I've ever done with the filmmakers behind Peanut Butter Falcon about working your way into the industry from all the way on the outside. It's really the opposite of Jeff's story, but no less important, uh, both of them so informative and, and and all of them so humble and honest and forthcoming. And I think that, um, you know, it's, as I always say, I feel so lucky to get to talk to these people and for them to open up to us. And it's because of all of you, because they want to help you guys understand what they're up to and what they've done and, and how they've gone about what they're doing. So uh, please keep, keep coming back and we'll talk to you later. Mm-hmm.